And you know, you keep your kids in church and you teach them to serve the Lord. We believe they will follow the Lord when they get older. Just stay right on top of that. Don't let kids get away from you. All right, let's open our Bibles now, if you would please, to Revelation chapter 14. And tonight we're in part number two, the message that I began last week, entitled Grain and Grapes. And the subject that we're speaking on is the reaping of the earth and a great harvest that uh, takes place just before Christ comes to establish his millennial kingdom. And the time that we're talking about here is near the end of the tribulation. And in the 14th chapter, we have a preview of a great battle that's going to take place and It actually is described in more detail in chapter 19, and that's the battle of Armageddon. And this is a battle that will be fought on the plains of Megiddo in Israel, and it's the final reaping of the earth. And this reaping is a harvest. It's not a harvest of crops, but it's a harvest of people. And verses 14 through 20 in this chapter describe what this harvest is like. So if you'd look in your Bibles there and stand with me as we read God's Word, Revelation 14, verse number 14 down to the end of the chapter. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city. And behold, blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reading of your word. And we ask you, Lord, that you would help us as we look into your word tonight. Give us understanding of what you'd have us to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, you may be seated. Before I get really get started into the message tonight, uh, how many of you did get your hands on a copy of our end times timeline that we passed out last week? If you didn't get one of those, we have some more that are in the office, or we've now got it posted on the website, so you can look there under under the blog and... Uh, you'll find a link to that so you can download it as a PDF if you want to print it for yourself. But here in this passage of Scripture, we're uh, speaking of a harvest of grain and a harvest of grapes. And the question that first is posed here, I think, is are we talking about two harvests or is the passage speaking of only one? And there is some disagreement on that point because there are some who do believe that there's only one harvest that is intended here and this refers to the final reaping of the lost in the end of the tribulation. But it seems to me that there is a division in these scriptures as we look at verses 15 and 16 that it appears that this may to, uh, refer to one type of harvest and then verses 
17 through 20 uh, as a different harvest. Now, this first harvest may be a harvest of those that are saved, that are saved out of the tribulation. And the second one refers to those that are lost. Now, for our purposes, what I've done is I consider this to be one event, but there are two types of harvest. Now, I believe that the first harvest that's spoken of is the reaping of the wheat. And that's what we spoke about, uh, spoke about in the last message. Uh, we discussed the reaping of wheat, and we referred back to Matthew chapter 13, uh, where it's told about there, which is a separation between the wheat and the tares. The wheat stands for the people of God, and the tares stands for unbelievers. Those are the lost that are going to be separated out at the end, and then they will be cast into the uh, fires of hell. Now, the reaper, according to our text in Revelation 14, is the son of man. And that, of course, refers to Christ. He's the one who directs this harvest, and his people are very carefully separated out, and they are preserved. Well, the analogy of a harvest is one that's very appropriate, I think, because here we have a picture of Christ who is waiting and waiting and knowing the exact time when the grain is ripe and then ready to be taken in. Now, we don't know when the season of this harvest will be. That's a secret that's known only to God. Uh, Christ knows exactly what he's looking for, and he knows when the time is just right that he's going to come back and he's going to uh, rapture his children out of the world. And that is the event that actually establishes this time, uh, this timing of of the final reaping of the earth. Now, the interesting thing about this, or one of the interesting things, and and we point this out on the timeline, if you get a copy of that, that uh, Christ's second coming actually comes in two parts. The first phase is when he comes and he takes the church out of the world. And then the second part of that is when he comes to do this final reaping. Now, you and I that are alive right now, that are saved by the blood of Christ, we're looking forward to the first phase of that. And, And we don't know when it's going to be. But we do know that when it comes, then the second phase of this will be seven years later. So we can't mark our calendars now, and we can't know exactly when Christ will come. But those that are living after the rapture and people who are saved during the tribulation time can, in fact, count their calendars forward seven years, and they'll be able to tell approximately the time that Christ is coming to reap the earth. Now, as you know, there are a lot of date setters today. There are many people that are trying to figure out when Christ is coming back, and there's some of them who actually think that they can pinpoint the exact date. A few weeks ago, there was someone who left some pamphlets here in the church, and the title of one of the pamphlets was, God Gives Another Infallible Proof That Assures That the Rapture Will Occur May 21st, 2011. Now, interestingly enough, the person who wrote that pamphlet also set two other infallible dates. And when they didn't come to pass, I I suppose he just figured that he would try again. But he's absolutely sure that Christ is coming back next year in May. So you may want to mark your calendars accordingly so you can watch out for that. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus has not given anyone that information. And there aren't any scriptures. I don't care how, how much you climb through the word of God and plow through it and try to put all these scriptures together and, the, and dates and times and numbers that the Bible gives. You are not going to be able to figure out when Christ is coming back. And if you want to know the truth of this, that's something that I don't want to know. 
I don't want to know the exact hour that's coming back. God hasn't told us that for a purpose. And, and I, I don't want to try to figure it out. Because I, I think if people actually knew the very date that Christ was coming, that they would be so frantic trying to figure out what they were going to do. I mean, what are they going to do about friends and family who haven't come to know the Lord? Uh, they're going to be absolutely miserable in those very last hours. And instead of looking forward to the coming of Christ, they would be saying, Lord, please stay away. I mean, let let us get some more of our family members in. Let us get some more people saved. And they would prefer that Christ would delay. Now, of course, we ought to have an urgency about us uh, as far as the coming of Christ is concerned because he could come this very night. And so we need to be concerned about friends and loved ones. But if we knew for sure that Jesus was coming back tomorrow at noon, I mean, how many of you would be extremely worried about that, that you've got somebody in your family that you just think, God needs to wait a little bit longer until I get that person saved? Now, you see, there are some things that we just don't need to know. God hasn't told us these things because he doesn't want us to know them. So we can't set the exact date. We don't know the exact moment that it's going to happen. But when he does come, those who are saved during the tribulation time will be able to look back at the time that the rapture came and they'll be able to tell that approximately seven years after that, Christ will come to reap the, the earth. So I believe then that the first part of this is the reaping of the wheat. This is the redeemed that are reaped from the earth, and they're gathered into God's garner, and they're going to be protected, and they will rest forever with Christ. Well, that part of it, that's the good news that comes out of the tribulation. And in fact, that's really the only good news. Uh, Christ is the victor. He is the conqueror, and his people are going to overcome. But the rest of what happens to people that are here is all bad because there's coming another part of this harvest and this concerns God's reaping the vine of the earth. And so the second part of the harvest that we want to speak about tonight is the trampling of wrath. Now I want you to look at verse number 19 if you would again. It says, And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now, notice that terminology, the vine of the earth. W.A. Criswell says, The vine of the earth is a reference used in contradistinction to the vine of heaven, which is our blessed Lord with the branches. The vine of the earth is the vine of rejection, of unbelief, of blasphemy, of unrepentance. Now, in the first part of the text, starting with verse number 14, we spoke about a harvest of grain. But now, the metaphor changes to that of grapes. And these aren't grapes that grow on the true vine, not the grapes that are produced from a good vine, which is life eternal. And that vine, of course, is Christ. This is a different vine. And this is a vine that the fruit of it swells to ripeness and rottenness and the worst evil that the human heart can produce. Now, in the end of the 18th verse, the Scripture says, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Now here, it's not talking about ripened grapes in the sense that they're full and they're sweet, they're tasty and they're good. But the actual meaning of this is that these are grapes that are ripened beyond their time. These are grapes that are beginning to turn rotten and they're drying up. And the picture that we have here is that the wickedness of the world has gone on too long. And now it's time to put a stop to it. Now let's look at a few things about this harvest. 
And again, I want to remind you that this is a reference to the final battle that takes place on the earth. And in that battle, Christ is the ultimate victor. And we'll read a little bit more about it when we get into Revelation chapter 19. So we're not going to be real specific about it this evening. It's going to come up again, and then we'll deal a little bit more with the battle of Armageddon. But I want you to notice from this text first, the angels that assist... Angels have played an integral part in the tribulation time and all of these scriptures that we've studied up to this point. And here we see that angels are, again, are very closely involved in this final battle. In verse number 15, the angel comes from the temple and he gives instructions to Christ concerning the final reaping of the grain harvest. And I think that we should notice there that the command, it's not an angel that's giving a command to Christ. And the response that comes in verse number 16 is not Christ following angelic orders, but the angel that comes out of the temple represents a directive of the righteousness of God. Now, the temple is God's sanctuary in heaven. That's where God dwells. And in that place, there are angels that attend especially to the throne of God. And I think that the Bible points out that these are the seraphim. Uh, Seraphim, they're the ones that guard the holiness of God. Angels are messengers, and so that's what this angel does. He carries the message, and this message is that there is agreement between the Father and the Son that now the time is right. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 41, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity. Now here we see that angels are not the ones in charge, but they are the ones that take orders. And so they are the instruments that will reap the earth, and they will gather up those who have not repented of sin. And so when the scripture says that Christ will reap and angels will reap, it's a reference to Christ directing the activity of angels. Now I think that we ought to notice here that this is a very much different type of activity than most people think. When you talk to people about angels, uh, what, usually what they tell you about it is mostly erroneous and really doesn't have any support in the scriptures. Most of what people believe about angels is really, really closer to mythology than it is to theology. And so people have this totally wrong idea what angels do. I mean, people have the picture in their mind of the fat little Cupid angel who shoots arrows into your valentine, and that's their idea. Uh, some people think that angels sit around on clouds, and they have halos that they wear on their head. And others believe that when you die, that that's what happens to you. You become an angel. You earn your set of wings. And so you flitter, and you fly around, and you do good deeds, and you watch over your loved ones that are on the earth. And then, of course, Hollywood has a picture of angels. I think we talked about this before when we were studying in Ephesians that um, I think there was a movie that came out that uh, had angels wearing trench coats and sitting on road signs and on top of buildings. And sometimes an angel may decide that he doesn't want to be an angel anymore. And so he takes a plunge to the earth because he wants to become like a human. And so there are some angels who can actually become like normal people. All of that's a lot of nonsense. There's nothing like that in the scripture. Angels are ministering spirits for God's people. But to those that are lost, an angel is the most fearsome creature imaginable. Angels are going to be a terror in the time of tribulation because every time that a person in the tribulation sees an angel, he knows something bad is about to happen. Now, even with that angel that we saw in the sixth verse of this same chapter who comes with the everlasting gospel... That angel also brought with him a message of judgment. And so in verse 17, there's an angel that comes out with a sharp sickle. 
And in verse 18, there's the angel with the power over fire. And they come out and they wreak havoc and they cut down those who attempt to make war with Christ. You know, I've always wondered what this would be like. I've wondered what the method of death would be when an angel kills someone. How does an angel do that? In 2 Kings chapter 19, there's a story there of an angel that killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Now, when they got up in the morning, all of these Assyrians were dead, but it doesn't tell us actually how that angel killed them. They were all dead corpses, but it didn't say how they were killed. So there's no mention of that. I don't know if they died of a heart attack or what God did to them, but they all died. Now, in this text, there's definitely blood that's involved with it, and we'll talk about it in just a moment, but I still don't know how it's done. I mean, I don't know if an angel comes. Now, you may not think about things like this. I've watched too many gory movies, I think, maybe. But I don't know. Does an angel come and does he slice people in half? Is that how he kills people? Or does he shoot them with arrows? I don't know. Does he? Is it like being put in a microwave or something, and all of a sudden you explode and you're all bits and pieces? I don't know. I don't know. But in these last days, I'll tell you this. If you meet an angel, you might as well forget about running because it's too late. It's all over with. So this is really just a whole different picture than people have of angels. Now, I want you to also notice something special about this angel in verse number 18. It says, And another angel came out of the altar which had power over fire. Now, here, then, is the altar with an answer. And I'll tell you what that means in just a moment. There's an angel that comes from the altar. Now, by the way, this is the sixth angel that we find in this chapter. Three of those we talked about in the message uh, announcements from the apex. The fourth angel is in verse 15. The fifth is in verse 17. And now the sixth angel is the one that comes out from the altar. Now, what is he speaking of here when he talks about an altar? Well, we're talking here about heavenly locations, and so this is an altar that's in heaven. If you remember, when Moses made the furnishings for the tabernacle, the book of Hebrews says that he made those things after a pattern of things that are in heaven. Now, the altar spoken about here is the altar of incense, and that's the place of prayer. In the tabernacle, there was an altar of incense. It stood right in front of the veil that entered into the holy place, uh, holiest of holies, rather. And it, and it separated those two compartments that were in the tabernacle. And what the priest would do, he would come daily in the morning, and he would burn incense on that altar so that in the tabernacle, there was always this sweet smell of incense that permeated and filtered through the air that was in the tabernacle. And that was a picture that the prayers of God's people are sweet to God, that they're a, a sweet in his nostrils, a sweet smell. And also God's, uh, the prayers of God's people are pleasing to his ears. And then once each year on the Day of Atonement, the priest would come and he would take blood and put it on the horns on, uh, all around the four corners of that altar. And that represented that Christ is the mediator of our prayers. And prayers are only accepted on the basis of Christ's blood. Now you can see, I think, how uh, that beautifully fits in with the study that we had of the Lord's Prayer. And that is that you can only have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You can't come any other way. And so you have to be born again, and you have to be covered under the blood of Christ. And those kinds of pictures are just masterfully woven all throughout the Scriptures. And so when the priest put that blood on the horn of, those, of, that, of that altar, on the four corners of the altar, that was a symbol that Christ's blood would be shed. 
And so here then is this uh, altar in heaven. The angel comes out from it. It's the altar of incense. And here are the prayers of God's people. Now let's go back to an earlier place where we've seen this altar before. If you go back to chapter 6 now in verse number 9, we find this altar mentioned there as well. And of course this is the same chapter that begins with those uh, four horsemen and the opening of the first four seals that were on Redemption Scroll. But there was also an opening of the fifth seal and that comes in the ninth verse of chapter 6. It says here, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar... The souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Now here is the altar of incense, and there's a question that's asked. How long, Lord, how long are you going to wait until you judge and you avenge our blood upon those that dwell on the earth? Now, here are people that have already been slain during the tribulation time, and they're wondering how long will it be before God actually avenged them of their deaths. Now, if you turn over a few pages to chapter 8 and verse number 3, we see again uh, something about this altar. Uh, Revelation 8, verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, And there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. Now, this is the very same altar that we see in Revelation 14. This is the, <clears throat> the altar of incense. And, <clears throat> excuse me. and this contains the prayers of God's people. So God always remembers the prayers of his people. And the question was asked, how long is this wickedness, wickedness going to last? How long are you going to wait to avenge us? When are you going to reap the earth? And the answer to that question is in Revelation 14, 18. And another angel came out of the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So there is the answer to that question that's asked by these people. Now the world is overdue. The, the, it's, it's ripe. It's rotting. Sin has been filled up to the max. And now it's time to reap the earth and to cut off the wicked and to spill the blood of those who spilled the blood of martyrs. Now, I think what we see here is a very much different Christ, very much different picture of Christ than we see in other places. The love of God is talked about much, but we also see that God is a God of wrath. And his love for his people turns into his wrath against the lost. And in fact, God loves his people so much that you dare not touch one of them. Now, thank the Lord for this. For people living today, that God is suffering right now. Long-suffering. God puts up with the vexation of the righteous people now. And men can talk about the meek and gentle Jesus now. But when he comes in glory, he comes with an army of angels. He comes with an army of just men made perfect and he will permit the wickedness of the world no longer. And so the wicked then are gathered in. They're reaped, and they're cut down and cast into the fires of hell. 
Now, some might think, well, what we have here, uh, surely this is a merciful act. And some would say, well, if God's going to kill me, then make sure that I don't suffer. I mean, make this thing easy. Make it clean. Let me die in my sleep or something like that so that I won't be afraid of it. But no, we're not talking, uh, uh, we're talking a very much different Christ here. I mean, this is not the Christ that you see in pictures, a flower child with long hair and soft blue eyes. This is not the effeminate Jesus with perfectly manicured fingernails and speaks softly and gently while he blesses the beast and the children. This is not that Christ. This is a Christ of vengeance. And the word of God says that he has eyes like a flame of fire. And this is Christ who comes with that frightful angelic army. And these are, this he and this army are, are, are two that you do not want to meet in a dark alley at night. And you don't want to meet him in the sunshine either, I'll tell you that. A fearsome sight. Now thirdly, we have the gathering of grapes. Verse, again, verse 19. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now here we have a terrifying metaphor. I mean, this is a great mass of humanity. They're the vine of the earth. They're wicked. These are the same ones that shook their fist in the face of God. And they said, we will not have this man to reign over us. And they said, we love the beast. We'll take his mark. We'll worship his image. And so they defy God with sin to the fullest. You know, I think of America. I think uh, how it is in this area where people have no thoughts for God at all. People resist the gospel. They don't want to hear about God's laws. They're not going to obey God. And so you see people out here marching in the streets for gay rights, and they strip themselves naked, and they fornicate in public. They, they push their way into our public schools. They push the agenda that they have on little school children, the books that are in our libraries. And so they turn everything upside down, and to resist them is to make you look like you're an ogre. When you resist this, and you look like a hate monger. And so they're the ones who say that all oh, Christians are anti-American. And the truth of the gospel and the righteousness of God is like poison to them. And so they throw off the yoke, and they go their own way. And they flaunt their wickedness in the face of God. The very same God who gives them bread to eat and breath, uh, air to breathe. Now these that we see today, like all of these in the tribulation time, are ripened. They're getting fat on their sin, and it's long overdue that God should come and judge them. And so one day they're going to hang on the vine, and they're going to be fattened up and ready to be reaped. And in a moment, they're going to be cut off, gathered up, thrown into the wine press where they'll meet the vintner. Now the angels are the ones that do the cutting. But the job of pressing out the grapes and squeezing out the juice belongs to Christ. You ever taken a plump, juicy grace and grape and rolled it around in your fingers and squeezed it and it pops? And uh, if you're not careful, it squirts some juice into your eye. You know, like I, I think about taking an eyeball and squeezing an eyeball and it pops out and doink and the juice spurts out of it. Well, these are thrown into a vat, into the winepress of God's wrath. These are people who are gathered together, and so Christ steps into the vat, and with his heavy feet of brass, he starts treading the winepress, and all those grapes are popping beneath his feet. Now, it's not juice that spurts out, but this is blood that comes out. You get that picture in your mind? I mean, that is a gory picture when you think about it. Do you ever go to a junkyard and see him crush cars? 
You know, they put the car in a, in a press and that big heavy press comes down and it starts to, it hits the top of the car and keeps pressing and pressing and pressing until it gets the car completely flat. You ever thought about what it would look like if you put a person inside of one of those presses? And the, and the weight of that press starts to come down and you have a man in there that's alive and he's breathing and his heart is pumping the blood and that press comes down and you start to see the stress and the strain on the body as the weight pushes down. And you notice that the skin gets purple and the blood's being pushed out of the veins into every part of the fingers and the toes and the arms and the feet and the hands. And then the weight comes down and it reaches the point where the skin can't contain it any longer and it goes pop. And the blood squirts out everywhere. That's what I think about when I don't have anything else to do. But that's sickening, isn't it? I mean, you think about that. that that's a sickening picture. And this is a very much different Christ than we see, we've seen before. This is the judge of men. And you don't want to meet him in his fury. And he's sick and tired at this point of people wagging their fingers in his face and saying, we're not going to have you reign over us. We're not going to bow down to you. Now you say, well, that, that can't be. That can't be an accurate picture. That, that's got to be a figment of your imagination. Well, let's look what the Scriptures have to say about it. Let's look at two Scriptures, one in the Old and one in the New. I'll just read these to you. Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 4. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with, none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. Now who are we talking about here? Well, it's the one who speaks in righteousness, the one who's mighty to save. Who is that? Well, that's none other than Christ. And you say, well, well wait, 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 wait. That's an Old Testament reference. We don't, we don't see Jesus like that in the New Testament. Well, hold on just a minute. Let's flip over to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, and see what it says here. Revelation nineteen eleven. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is referring to the exact same event in Isaiah chapter 63. It is the same Lord. It is the same Christ. His vesture is dipped in blood. Why? Now that means his garments. His garments are dipped in blood. And why are they dipped in blood? We have the answer. He's trampled the wicked in the winepress of God's wrath. And so he steps on them and he crushed them until their blood is spurted up on his clothes. Now that's the one you better fear because in the day of judgment, there's no mercy. Uh, this is not, not going to be a fun thing to go through. 
Now, before I leave this particular point, I, I maybe want to go off the subject just a little bit. We're talking here about the Lord. And what happens to those who refuse Jesus as Lord? Now, these are people that won't bow down to him. And so Scripture says that these who won't bow down to him as Lord will have the life crushed out of them. But did you know that there are some people who say that you can be saved and that you can trust the Savior, but you need not bow down to Jesus as the Lord? And so they say that they reject lordship salvation, and they say that you can be a Christian, but you don't really have to be a disciple. And they say that some believers are actually not disciples because what they can do is they can reject the lordship of Christ and they can go on living in sin and they never actually show any fruits of repentance. In fact, these very same people will redefine repentance and they'll say that repentance, well, that simply means a change of mind from unbelief to belief. So essentially, uh, what they teach is that faith and repentance are actually the same thing. And so you only need to repent of unbelief. And there is no requirement that when you get saved that you actually repent of all of your sins and you turn from your sin. Now, can you see here what Christ does to the lost that refuse him as Lord? They won't have him to reign over them. Now, could you then say that you don't think that Christ has made it an imperative that his own people should call him Lord? Certainly he has. A gospel that does not have Christ as the Lord is a false gospel. Now, do you know that the terminology that's often used, and it's not necessarily bad terminology, but we use this all the time, accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. I use that. We say it all the time. But those words are never even used in Scripture. But what it does say in Scripture is that you must receive him as Lord. Paul says this in Romans 10, verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You must confess the Lord Jesus. Now, friend, Jesus must be your Lord or he's not going to be your Savior. So that's a little point of doctrine that just thrown in there while you're thinking about spurting grapes. So let's finish then with the last point of the text. Fourthly, we want to look at the bridles and blood. The bridles and blood. Verse number 20. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even under the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Now again, I want to remind you, we're talking here about the battle of Armageddon, uh, further explained in chapter 19. The city that it refers to here is uh, Jerusalem, which apparently has spared the carnage. But outside the city, there's this huge army that's gathered all throughout the central part of Israel, stretching all the way from the plains of Megiddo all the way down to the south of the Dead Sea. Some say, you know, that's, that's about 200 miles from border to border in Israel. And this whole army is gathered there. Now, what about then those who would not have Christ rule over them? Well, all of these that refuse to have him rule gather themselves together and they form an army of their own and they join forces to try to defeat Christ. Now, let's listen to what the psalmist says on this point. This is in Psalm chapter 2. He says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Now, there you see, they say he's not going to rule over us. And then they say, we're going to break the bands by which he holds us. 
Now here's God's response to their foolishness. Verse number four. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Then going down to verse number nine. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so here is this whole area that encompasses nearly the entire land of Israel. And the whole land is God's winepress. And so Christ comes with his army. He comes where all of these people are gathered. And folks, then the carnage begins. And he begins to stomp the grapes. And the blood begins to flow. Now here is an army of 200 million strong. And they're in this winepress of God's wrath. And here comes God, and there are so many people, and there is so much blood, that there is a river of blood, perhaps as some say, even as much as two feet deep, that flows like a trough throughout that whole land. And blood is going to be splashed up, it says here, as high as the horse's bridles. Now Christ treads that winepress, and in the process, while he does it, that's how his clothes get stained with blood. Now again, I would say, that is a quite stunning picture of Christ. One day... God is going to have his fill of sin. The earth is going to be ready. And then God is going to reap. The first thing he does, he gathers in the wheat. He gathers in his people. And he separates them out from the tares. He gets his people out of the way. Puts them into a place of peace and safety. And then, folks, he lets loose with his wrath on the vine of the earth. Now, this is a great harvest that comes at the end. Sin is not going to last forever. Death will not last forever. God's people are not going to have to ask forever how long. God here stops war forever. There's a final battle that takes place. And then what comes next is the kingdom of Christ upon this earth. Now I hope that each of you tonight that you have a head start on the kingdom of Christ. You want to be in his kingdom because you don't want to be left behind to go into the Lord's winepress. So a very, very much different picture of Christ. And we do really need to understand that God has vengeance on sin and he avenges his people. So God's not going to suffer, be long-suffering forever. Someday the patience is going to wear out and God's going to send Christ back with his angels and then the earth is going to be reaped. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are indeed thankful that we can look out over this congregation tonight. And as far as we know, uh, just uh, practically everybody here has trusted Christ as Savior, repented of their sins, they have their faith in you. And we know, Lord, that they are awaiting the, the coming of Christ to remove us from this world before all of these events take place. But, Lord, I do pray that if there's someone here tonight who hasn't received you as Savior, that they would tonight very clearly understand that Christ could come back at any moment, and they need to be ready for that. And they won't be ready unless they have their faith in you. And then we pray for Christians that we would be concerned about our loved ones. Since we don't know the hour that you're coming, there are people that we're around every day, and people in our families, people in our neighborhoods, people that we work with. And if you should come back in this very hour, that so many people will be cast into this terrible time of tribulation, and then many, many of them eventually will be in the winepress of your wrath. Lord, help us to be concerned about them. Help us to give your gospel. And we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to do so. So we pray that you'd bless tonight, Lord. We thank you for the time to look into your word. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.